This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Amy Porter, and this is my podcast. My mission is to show people how to empower themselves through music, business, and media. I try to see as clearly as possible how I can help. I showcase the music that I've played and the people I've met along the way. I'm a wife and a stepmom. You might know me as a professor, a performer, a producer, a publisher, a recording artist. I'm the founder of a couple of nonprofits. Welcome in to my Porter Flute Pod. Welcome to Porter Flute Pod. It's Business 101, and we're getting down to business with Michael Haithcock. He's the director of bands here at the University of Michigan School of Music, Theater, and Dance, and one of the most professional people we all know. So let's talk to him about commissioning, commissioning composers, and the future of music. In the pod with me, asking the questions, and I'm also asking the questions, is Alan J. Tomasetti and Justine Sedke. We went to the vault and got out my personal recording of Joel Puckett's Shadow of Sirius, written for me and the University of Michigan Symphony Band, uh, because it's the 10th anniversary. Why not? Let's celebrate it. It's actually 10, 10 plus 1. 11 years ago, this was premiered here in Ann Arbor. I'm so lucky. I, I'm just so happy to celebrate it again. October 22nd, Hill Auditorium, Michael Hathcock conducting the University of Michigan Symphony Band. So let's hear more about it. Welcome to Porter Flute Pod. We're so happy you're here. Michael Hathcock is the director of university bands and Arthur F. Thurnau professor and the professor of music and conducting. He assumed his duties as director of bands and professor of music at the University of Michigan in the fall of 2001, following 23 years on the faculty of Baylor University, following in the footsteps of William D. Ravelli and H. Robert Reynolds Professor Haithcock conducts the internationally renowned University of Michigan Symphony Band. He guides the acclaimed Graduate Band and Wind Ensemble Conducting Program, and he provides administrative leadership for all aspects of the University of Michigan's diverse and historic band program. Ensembles under Michael Haithcock's guidance have received a wide array of critical acclaim for their high artistic standards of performance and repertoire. These accolades have come through concerts at national and state conventions, performances in major concert venues, and recordings on the Albany, Arsis, and Equilibrium labels. Haithcock has earned the praise of both composers and conductors for his innovative approaches to developing the wind ensemble repertoire and programming, and I think you're going to hear that today. 
Heathcock is in constant demand as a guest conductor, and he's a resource person for symposiums and workshops in a variety of instructional settings. A graduate of East Carolina University, where he received the 1996 Outstanding Alumni Award from the School of Music, and Baylor University, Haithcock has done additional study at a variety of conducting workshops, including the Herbert Blomstedt Orchestral Conducting Institute. The Instrumentalist, you know that magazine, uh, MSBOA, uh, Michigan School Band and Orchestra Association, The School Musician, The Southwest Music Educator, and Wins Magazine have published his articles on conducting and wind literature. It is my sincere pleasure to welcome Michael Haithcock. Welcome, my friend, Michael Haithcock, to Porter Flute Pod. Thank you, Amy. It's nice to be with you. We have some questions for you because you're so impressive <laughs> with bringing us the future of music. So that's what this podcast is about. It's kind of what it's called, The Future of Music and Commissioning. We have had our live music put on hold, so uh, you kept commissioning, I'm pretty sure, through this whole process or thinking about the commissioning of future works post-COVID. And so we wanted to know about your thoughts on commissioning in general, because the University of Michigan Symphony Band, and you in particular, are so generous in the music that you bring to us. Could you tell us your experience in commissioning composers and works for band? Sure. Let me start by retracing my uh, upbringing to being a saxophone major in college. And the saxophone major uh, does not have the canonic repertoire that many instruments have. And I had the joy and the privilege of studying with a man named James Hulick, who was not only a classical saxophonist, but he was a classical tenor saxophonist. So you can imagine that his repertoire was a constant evolution as he learned to... Uh, connect with composers and go after big fish, little fish, anybody who would write a piece. And it just kind of hit me as a way of being. And at that time, my goal was to replace my high school band director when you retired, a goal that I failed at miserably. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I got connected with this idea of if you don't have a canonic repertoire, then you have to go out and build it. And then as I as things moved forward and I was able to have some of the fortunate positions I've been able to have, that that sort of ethos stuck with me. And then it became not just building a, a repertoire because you don't have one, but what's the kind of repertoire that you have? What's the diversity of style? What's the diversity of representation? All the things that are so crucial in today's uh, world. I mean, I, I was already involved in that uh, long before it, this moment in time, but um, the moment in time has just made the need for us to do it all the more uh, important. How different is commissioning a band and getting it replayed and replayed and replayed to call it canonic or part of the canon and the difference between the orchestra and getting it repeated and repeated and having it part of the canon? Well, I mean, if you go back to when so much of the classical orchestral repertoire that's canonic, the Mozart, Beethoven, Brahms, et cetera, 
the wind uh, ensemble didn't have all the instruments that it has now. There were saxophones had not yet been invented. The tuba was represented by the serpent. You know, Beethoven five was the first uh, piece to have a piccolo. So, uh, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to have a fully developed instrumentation if you don't have the instruments. So the classical octet of two oboes, two uh, clarinets, two bassoons, two horns, supplemented later by flutes. Mozart added some extra instruments with basset horns from time to time and the two, two other horns. So you can sort of see the development of the orchestral wind section in the way that the music for wind instruments that was often viewed as entertainment music or, you know, the, the iPod of the day, the aristocrats uh, would hire their octet to play transcriptions of the operas and ballets that they, they like. Um, you can kind of see that develop along, but it was really the French revolution that catapulted um, the development of instruments and allowed the, what we now know as the modern wind band to develop. That took almost a hundred years. Our friend and colleague, William Bolcom says that, you know, the orchestra has gotten itself stuck uh, because they stopped adding instruments. They didn't add saxophones. They didn't add, you know, this or that. And everything has become about the dollar and how many things we're paying for. Well, in the academy, uh, where most of the highest level of wind bands exist, we don't uh, have the restrictions of having to sell tickets so we can really be more of an artistic. And there are people who say to me, there are composers who say to me, well, the, the the bands are of today are doing what the orchestras should have been doing all along. I think orchestras are catching up some, uh, particularly in the areas of diversity and inclusion with composers. Some have been forced upon them by social changes in the past few years. But, you know, in terms of uh, repertoire and repetition, if you, if I build a consortium of 10 or 15 ensembles to commission a piece, it's going to have that many performances. If fill in the blank orchestra commissions a, a piece, it may or may not have more than one performance. And so I think younger composers and even composers who are my age uh, and my friends and colleagues here on campus are, have realized over the last 20 plus years that there's um, a lot of friends out there in the band world and that their music uh, can be very well received and receive multiple performances doesn't lessen the impact of getting commission from one of the elite ensembles on the planet that is a major orchestra. But there's more measures to success for composers these days, just like there are for players. There's more ways to enjoy your art, more ways to express yourself than just one small track. I agree. And we have had some composers at Michigan pardon the phrase, reverse engineer their orchestral work to be for band and found quite a life in that piece. Well, I think the dual version phenomenon that you're uh, referencing by a number of composers, not just composers at Michigan, uh, is really a Baroque concept. I mean, Bach did the same thing. Uh, so, you know, we went through this period um, in, in the Romantic era, for example, where uh some people call it the composer is God myth, where everything was single track. I mean, Mozart stole from Haydn. They, they stole from each other. They borrowed folk songs. Uh, there's, there's so many things that, you know, some people have viewed in the 20th century as being 
lowbrow, uh, which were commonplace in the highest of brow that we consider a classical canon. So I, I think, you know, if I was a composer and I wrote a piece for orchestra and I could see with integrity a way to make a dual version of it, I'd sure do it because that's the way to make a living. And think about the number of pieces that you've played on recitals that weren't originally for flute. Think about the number of times those Schumann pieces are played <laughs> by clarinet, by oboe, by soprano sax. I mean, good Lord, you go down the list. I find that if the composer feels it's worthy of doing a what I call a dual version, uh, as opposed to me taking an orchestral score and transcribing it, which I've never done, although I, there, there are transcriptions by non-composers that I do because I think they work really well and I love. But I, I, don't, I don't have any hesitation uh, if a composer feels that a dual version uh, works for their piece to, to do it. And I think it gives, again, a greater sense of, of uh, fulfillment for the composer because they're going to get to hear the piece more. And it also, frankly, they have to earn a living. And that's um, a big part of, of why a composer writes. Let's talk about the fulfillment of the composer and where it starts in the commissioning process because you could be in a class at school, meet someone, become friends with them, and then all of a sudden start to hear their name being spoken off the tongues of others. And you say, wait, that's my friend. Maybe I should commission them. So can we talk about the process of commissioning and the thoughts of commissioning your friend versus, you know, some big name? Because I always say, hey, have your friend write you a piece, premiere it, it goes on your resume, and you never know where that person's going to end up. Sure. Well, let me go back to my saxophone days at East Carolina University. The composer at a small college 35 miles away wrote material for my saxophone teacher and for our saxophone quartet. And he would come over and pass out the music, we would sight read it, he'd take it up, work on it, come back the next week, and it would be improved. So I think that uh, friendship 
is not only a matter of a resume building or, or, or promotion, but it also gives the composer a chance uh, to, to workshop. I mean, you know, if I think about each of our faculty colleagues that I've worked with at Michigan over the past 21 years, everyone has a different way of working, but they're all open to hearing the results of their work and making adjustments. Everyone wants to make the document the most accurate document they can make because that's what gives life to their the integrity of their artistic intention. So to commission a piece by the person sitting two rows over in your theory class or music history, whatever the class is, that's just continuing a cycle of friendship. I mean, if you listen to the Beethoven octet for that classical harmony, the second horn part is harder than the first and it gets all the solos. Well, that's because this, the low horn player was one of Beethoven's best friends. So this is not a novel idea. <laughs> you, know, you can go back all the way through music history and you can see pieces dedicated to friends, not necessarily commissioned by friends, but dedicated to. And I, I you know, one of the reasons I moved to Michigan so many years ago was the opportunity to live in this sort of greenhouse of composition we have. I mean, we have eight or nine faculty composers. We have, you know, almost 70 composition students. And it, it's really a fertile ground for creative collaboration and for ideas. And so whether or not somebody's a student at Michigan or they're a student at, you know, any school that has a composition program, latching on and identifying uh, yourself as someone who's interested in, in new pieces, you might... The, Commission may the commission fee may be, hey, I'll buy Chinese food. <laughs> exactly. I always say a six pack of beer will get you or, yeah. everywhere. It doesn't have to be at, at, at you know the student level of commissioning uh, a heavy negotiation or a big fee. It can just be, hey, let's help each other by doing something interesting and creative. Um, and I, I'm, I'm so pleased with how our students at Michigan, uh, have you know have latched onto these ideas and are are doing robust uh, work, but again, it doesn't have to be just Michigan, and it just doesn't have to be for your solo instrument. We have a number of um, what one might consider to be odd instrumentated chamber groups that have been spawned at school uh, over the last few years because friends got together and said, "Hey, if we have this collective." We can commission works that are new for us as a group, but also we can use our collective forces in smaller groups and we can create an interesting program. And, um, you know, I think there's so many new ideas for uh, chamber groups beyond those that are canonic, the woodwind quintet, the string quartet. You know, those are those are well um, filled canons, but as well as deserving of new material. But there's a lot of variety out there that's possible. I'd like to give a shout out to Professor Evan Chambers, who, in a conversation with Professor Richard Aaron, decided, let's find a few instruments for the first year and give our composition students chamber music to write. So the first year was flute and cello, and I think it was piano. Uh, and that was such a great assignment. And this assignment from Evan Chambers to his students to write 
for specific studios puts a very high bar because Professor Aaron's studio, my studio, every single studio in the school can play. (laughs) And so we're so excited to receive new pieces. I just came across a lot of scores for chamber music, and I'm going to see if I can get them replayed instead of just one assignment. You know, let's get these pieces out there. Well, you know, the other thing that happens historically uh, the canon wasn't the canon when it was written. So, That's what Justine said last week. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, Be- Beethoven was, in some quarters, was not as popular as Hummel back in the day. And you can see how that turned out. So I think, you know, time has a, a wonderful way of sifting. And uh, repetition and exposure, you know, someone said to me long ago, there's there's two things, two ways to think about this. Literature is what exists. Repertoire is what gets played. So there's this repertoire, if you want to use it as an inclusive, that doesn't really see the light of day anymore. And it's it's not it's just literature. It's like the books on your shelf that you've never read. Uh, but it's the repertoire is what's living and breathing and getting played. And I think what we're all trying to do in this context of commissioning and, and building a, uh, an increasingly diverse set of repertoire is get as much literature produced, turn it into repertoire, and then let history and the quality of what's developed play out over time. Uh, if I look back, I mean, this is my 44th year of doing this work. And if I look back uh, when I started as, uh, you know, conducting in in 1978 after graduate school, uh, some of the pieces that were, you know, really important then don't even get played anymore because so much has changed and so much has happened uh, in in all in good ways. And if I just look at my 20, now 21 years at Michigan, the contributions of my colleagues at the University of Michigan uh, to the wind band repertoire in that 20 plus years is, is astounding. I mean, we have either formally presented or have in the pipeline 109 commissions uh, over that um, amount of time. And, you know, it's going forward and who knows where the end game will wind up. But, you know, my predecessor, H. Robert Reynolds, uh, figured out a way through using some funds to create the H. Robert Reynolds Band Commissioning Fund and that was just really getting started when uh, he retired and I took over. But those funds have been oxygen for a lot of creative ideas uh, that I've been able to spawn with composers. And because consortiums, you know, no one used to have consortiums. Uh, consortiums started in my history in the mid 90s because uh, a bunch of us college band conductors wanted to commission John Harbison. And there was a conference and there was a business meeting and and the person who was trying to organize it stood up and said, look, we don't have enough money. I need people to buy shares. Here's the buy-in. 10 minutes, it was done. Then, uh, you know, that sort of just took off. And I think the orchestra world has really been sort of chasing the band world in building consortiums. I mean, it used to be that you'd have fancy Philharmonic would commission a piece. (laughs) And it would it would take, you know, that that person would get a, a, a lump sum and it'd get the, pl- the one play. If it was good, you know, then it would get a lot of play. And thank God for Kusevitsky in Boston, 
Think about all the things he did out of his foundation. Uh, and he did it singularly. He didn't have consortiums. Yes. But not many other uh, orchestras had those consortiums. So now, um, you know, we, we, have a, we had a consortium with the Big Ten Band Directors Association and the New York Philharmonic to have a trumpet concerto written by Aaron J. Kernis. And, you know, we've all, on both sides of the ensemble genre aisle, we've both been, been very um, collaborative in trying to work out things and also trying to work in, in ways in which uh, our, our goals feed all sides of the aisle, not just one particular thing. I have to have this conversation with you about the listener of the orchestral new music versus the listener of the wind ensemble or the band. Uh, is it an elitist um, listener or form of music making because the instruments of the violin and the string, you know, all the strings, the piano, all this are so much more expensive and that the children who don't have access to the funds for those instruments are given brass instruments, wind instruments, and percussion instruments. So with that in mind, do you think that um, the the underprivileged sector of music student is going to gravitate towards the band and listening to all these fantastic new pieces? Do you see an influence on the band world in poorer communities? I don't know that I'm fully equipped to answer that, so I'm just going to take a stab at it, and I I could be completely off base. Um, I think that the band's uh, dual history of concert performance, classical performance, with the more utilitarian track of community support through mar high school marching band and all that sort of stuff, I think it's as much that presence in a community that that gives sway to wind instruments um, in addition to what you said. And, you know, if a community is going to invest in itself, the wind instruments who then show up at community events uh, seem like a more logical investment in some ways. Um, so, you know, there are lots of school districts across the country where they do not have an orchestra, but they have a band. They have a choir. Maybe they have a jazz band. But those, those are, I, I think, the reasons that you touched on about economics and the expense of instruments and all that sort of stuff um, all come into play. And I think the overriding thing for why they have a band when they don't have an orchestra in many smaller towns, you know, less, less affluent areas, is because, to put it crudely, there's more bang for the investment of buck uh, in terms of what the community gets. Now, I think there's lots of really terrific organizations that have sprung up over the last 20, 25 years to try to counteract this. And um, Crescendo Detroit is one. Yeah. And that's at a public school level in Detroit trying to do more of what the Sphinx organization does on a more a national, international level. 
So I think so much of my response to your really deep philosophical and important question has to do with the specifics of the community uh, and not so much of, of, a, of a generalized statement. I know we're going to talk about Joel Puckett's piece, Shadow Cirrus, but I, I think one of the things that Joel has done that should be a model for a lot of young composers, if you look at a lot of his pieces, none of them sound the same. Yes. The, the flute piece, Shadow Cirrus, has one style. Um, the piece, short stories for string quartet and wind ensemble. Uh, he wrote an opera. He wrote a trumpet concerto, which is different than anything else that he's written. He wrote... Uh, an adagio symphony called Echoes of Time in the River. I mean, he's made a very purposeful attempt not to write the same thing. And there's a number of other composers that I think, you know, do that with integrity and, and still have their own voice. Um, but, you know, it's, it's interesting when you look at someone's career over a block of time, we can, with retrospect, look at Stravinsky and say, Stravinsky had these periods. We can look at Copeland and say, Copeland had these periods. Mozart didn't live long enough for it to do that. So um, there's, there is a sense of evolution to each composer's development of voice. Uh, but I think the trap for them is, is becoming pegged by this is, you know, oh, this is going to be another work like that. Some people find that very comforting because they know what they're getting. But over the arc of time, I think that's something that can be really dangerous for a composer. That's true. I think of that often, and yet I just never thought of that. <laughs> so you love a composer, perhaps for their style, and then you say, okay, write me a piece, and yet you want something new. So do you really, or do you want something that's their style? So that's very interesting. Um, you've been talking about tips to the composer's themselves, can you give some tips to the people who want to commission the work uh, and to make it more fluid and easy? For instance, the first tip you gave was don't commission your friend a month in advance um, unless you're ready to give them a lot of Chinese food and beer. What are some of the other things you can expect? Maybe just leave them alone or if they need you to play for them, like Michael Dougherty wanted me to play over a two-year span, I would go over there. And what came out was so personal that I loved that kind of work. But some composers don't write that way. Some composers don't review. So like, so help us out here to make any instrumentalist listening right now who wants to commission someone, how can we make it easier on all of everyone. So I'm famous for using a term called Eagle vision, which is that you have a clear idea of where this is going. And that's in opposition to chicken vision, which is the chicken is always pecking at the ground, two feet in front of their face. And so if you avoid this first thing about, I got to recycle in a couple of weeks, can you write me a piece there? There you go. That's the first step toward not having chicken vision. But with Eagle Vision, you know, if you just take the concepts of why am I asking this person to write a piece? Am I asking this person to write a piece because I want to put it on social media and I want to look good? Am I asking this person to write a piece because I feel some obligation to diversify the repertoire? That's all good. But what's the real musical meat? What do you what is it you really want? Do you want a sonata? 
Do you want a piece with electronics? You know, and and finding out, invest, you know, if you don't know the person personally, they're not sitting two rows over. You've gone on their website and you think, oh, this would be really be great. You know, you have to communicate in such a way that you are sort of putting yourself at the mercy of the composer. And what I mean by that is here's some ideas I have. Does anything resonate with you? And if nothing resonates, are you open to saying, is there something with my instrument or my proposal that you think might interest you if I give you some time to ruminate? And the composer might say, yeah, I'm just too busy or give me a month, contact me again in a month, you know, that sort of thing. Or they might say, yes, I'm interested in my fee is $2,500 a minute. Right. Most or, the, or the New York Philharmonic just called. I have to put your concerto off for another year. Yeah. I mean, those are those are all practical things. And those that's why I think this this notion of eagle visioning out. Now, when you're 18, 19, eagle vision is hard. You know, eagle vision is next Friday. Uh, so that's that's sometimes can be hard. But I think, you know, when you're in a collaborative environment like student environment, it's much easier to get by with a short term composition or the wonderful thing that Evan's done with uh, compositions and studios or that our colleague Courtney Snyder did last year and trying to create repertoire for chamber wins for our, for an ensemble, which was to say, here's what's possible. Who's interested. I mean, those kind of things can happen more in a school environment. Um, and, and it's all very useful, but I think if you're, if you're crossing a bridge between I'm no longer in school and what am I, what I want to do with this I just think some of those things I just uh, spoke about uh, can be very helpful because if you get off on the wrong foot with a composer, uh, it can be difficult. Uh, and if anybody wants to ask more questions about, uh, you know, tips, templates for contracts, whatever, feel free to email me at mlhaith at umich.edu and I'd be happy to provide some additional information. Oh, that's valuable. Thank you. Well, let's talk about this piece that can be played in community, which is called The Shadow of Sirius. The community is the band. The community is the flute professor or teacher playing with their colleague, the conductor. And the community is the students of that performer playing in the balcony antiphonally. So it's such a community-based piece. So congratulations on the commission of Shadow of Sirius uh, 10 plus one years ago. So yeah, we're going to yeah, celebrate yeah. the 10 plus one anniversary. Um, and thank you for this celebration. Has it been a success, uh, this Joel Puckett work for flute band and antiphonal flute choir? Has it been a success 
because of the community or because of the consortium or both? I think, yeah, all those things work, but I think the real success of the piece is it's tremendously heartfelt emotion by the composer that sings forth in this stunningly beautiful piece that is an atypical concerto. Um, well you know, said. I yeah. remember uh, talking to Joel about the piece. We, in fact, were at Max and Irma's in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, he was coming through town and he and I had developed a friendship because I had premiered his dissertation piece, uh, Ping Pang Pong, a few years earlier. And I had done several of his pieces and had done uh, Ping Pang Pong at some all state groups and that sort of thing. And he was you know, interested in a project. And we were sitting there talking about, um, you know, having a hamburger, talking about, you know, what might be. And I was looking for something to do with you. Uh, I wanted to do a flute piece. I had done a variety of concertos already with colleagues at Michigan over the first few years, but there wasn't really a flute piece that grabbed me. You know, I'd done the Hank Bodding's flute concerto with my colleague at Baylor, and I had done the all wind flute piece with eight winds. That's a, a very nice piece, but I, I didn't feel like there was really a great representation in the flute concerto with the wind medium. Uh, there were several transcriptions, you know, Carmen fantasies and all that, but I, I wasn't really interested in that. So we're sitting there talking and he was, you know, it was like, well, you know, I don't know that I can write a typical concerto uh, that will have anything new to say. So. I said to him, it doesn't have to be a technically difficult concerto. It could be a concerto based on a feeling and emotion and all the things that the flute brings to the table that other instruments don't necessarily and use the resources that is the artistry of Amy Porter. So we left that conversation agreeing to build a concerto. Uh, and I really had no idea that it would turn into what it turned into. But Joel and his wife uh, suffered a tr tragic loss of a, a yet to be born baby. And that tragedy turned him toward the poetry that is Shadow of Cirrus. And all those links came together in this stunningly beautiful piece. And it's simple in ways that are profound, yet it's emotionally uh, rich in ways that are equally profound. And the flute part is not typical technical virtuosity like the classical canonic form of a concerto, but yet it's, it's not every flute player can play it. <laughs> so um, I, I think he, you know, he knocked it out of the park. And I think all, all those things together make the casserole of success that this piece has had. I mean, it's been recorded at least a dozen times, you know, uh, and it, it gets played quite a bit. So, I mean, I mean, I, I, I'm excited to go back to it. I mean, we've had a couple of rehearsals already uh, for performance on October 22nd, and I love it all the more. The only thing I regret is that you know, 10 plus one years later, the notes look much smaller than they did <laughs> 10 years ago. 
<laughs> and for the listeners who want to hear Joel Puckett talk about this piece, you need look no further than season one of Porter Flu Pod, episode five. And when we had our friend cast number one, it was Joel Puckett. So you yeah, can the, find he, out the, the genesis. There's also of that. an interview he did about the piece um, on uh, what used to be called iTunes, Apple Music. Uh, it was part of the Artifacts CD uh, that the symphony band recorded in 2011. Um, and there's quite a good explanation by Jewel, as well as, I must say, uh, a recording that I'm immensely proud of by the University of Michigan Symphony Band, but really honored to have shared with the artist that is Amy Porter. It's quite an experience. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. It was a great experience, and I'm looking forward to doing it again. Although this time I will have a different flute maker in my hands, and so it's a new experience for the entire body. And uh, so please join us in Hill Auditorium on October 22nd. That's a Friday. And the downbeat is always right at 8 o'clock. Michael, I just, as an addendum, want to thank you for your professionalism in rehearsals. Your band really appreciates that. Uh, is there something you can advise uh, everyone ab about in, in being a great colleague and a musician and a leader like you are about, about scheduling and, and not wasting people's time, and especially in, in rehearsing for a commission like this? You know, um, how important is that all those things? that you're you're just so great at the scheduling help us out well uh, you know i think and i i say this to students all the time 
the people you work with have two tremendous resources, their talent and their time. And if you waste either, you're not doing your job. And so when I program, when I schedule, when I communicate, when I correct, when I advise, when I instruct, lead in rehearsal, that's constantly going through my mind. How can I be the most prepared? How can I be the most efficient? How can I be the most effective? You know, there's all, all this talk about conductors being dictators and ensembles not being a democracy. Well, you know, you can't take a vote on how you're going to have a phrase. That's not professional. You know, we're trying to build professionals. Uh, and so, but, but what, I, what I can do is create an atmosphere in the room that is always positive, always collaborative to, within the reasons that we, we do what we do. And I want every student to come into the room feeling safe, to learn and to grow. And if they make a mistake, it's not the end of the world. You know, we can try again, but there has to be that atmosphere that, you know, if you make a mistake of effort, fine. But if you make a mistake because you're not prepared, then that's, it's not about, you're not necessarily hurting me, but you're hurting everybody else because we're going to have to spend time. And I, I think, you know, one of the things that I've been uh, really so appreciative of the students at my time at Michigan, and the same was true at Baylor, right, where I spent 23 years before coming to Michigan, is that that sort of respect, the atmosphere of respect, um, it feeds itself. So they respect each other. They respect the music. They respect what we're doing. Um, you know, I don't have to be nasty or be mean or crack a whip or anything. Um, and isn't that what education and art should be about? Uh, so I don't know, to me, it's just sort of a simple truth. And, uh, I suppose I can attribute my feelings to my upbringing and to my musical mentors and to the colleagues I've worked with over the years. Um, I just don't know any other way. You know everyone's name. You say hello to them in the hallway. You seem to care so uh, uh, about them personally. So I just want to thank you for being the mentor of so many hundreds of young musicians out there. Well, you know, over 44 years, the Rolodex is pretty deep. <laughs> <laughs> of course it but is. But nothing gives me greater pleasure than to hear from former students uh, who have had who have success or who need something. Uh, and you know, if if I can't know somebody's name, how can I ask them to work hard? Exactly. So, you know, knowing their name, knowing where they're from, knowing what their goals are, to me, that's just part of being a teacher. Uh, I, I hate the term maestro because I don't feel like a maestro, but the root word of maestro is teacher, not pontificate. That's <laughs> so, right. uh, you know, I, I am who I am. And we love that. Thank you so much, Michael Haithcock. My pleasure. Thank you, Michael Haithcock, for being that person we know we can go to when we have questions. And thank you for bringing us your insights and wisdom on Porter Flute Pod. You can reach Michael, M-L-H-A-I-T-H, 
at umich.edu. And he gave you that email address earlier in the podcast. And thank you, Joel Puckett, for going deep within and creating our flute concerto, The Shadow of Sirius. I'll be performing The Shadow of Sirius on Friday, October 22nd at 8 o'clock p.m. in Hill Auditorium in Ann Arbor, Michigan with the University of Michigan Symphony Band and the flute section are members of my flute studio. Speaking of my studio, you're welcome to join us in Porter Flute Pod next episode for our Go Blue Flutes theme, and you'll meet the freshmen, the class of 2025. You can find more about me at amyporter.com or for students, porterflute.com. Thanks for being here. I'm so grateful for you.